Assalamu alaikum. Uh, my name is Nadeem Ulhaq. Uh, I'm the VC PAID. Welcome to this PAID special invited lecture by Professor Cass Sunstein. Um, I think all of you will share uh, this honor in welcoming Professor Sunstein to PID. Professor Sunstein, let me also tell you that PID is a 70-year-old institution, Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. And the interesting thing uh, for you would be that Harvard kind of um, was the midwife or probably uh, the main, uh, he, Harvard created the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. Sorry for that. So that I think is a bit of interesting uh, history that you might wish to know. And lots of people from Harvard came and contributed to PID here. So really PID is a baby of Harvard and it is so much, it is so, uh, so honorable to welcome you here that uh, you should um, talk to us people and our students. And as I said, judging from Twitter, the students and economic community in Pakistan is very excited to have you here. They would love to hear from you. People are familiar with your work, but it's, it'll be wonderful for them to see you and hear from you directly. And that, that does, as you know, that is a whole new nudge. So no one needs to introduce Professor Sunstein. His books are among bestsellers, even in Pakistan. You will see nudge in every uh, bookstore. <clears throat> but let me for the sake of formality, also do an introduction for Professor Sunstein, but I won't do it. We will bring in Fahad Zulfikar, one of PID's bright young minds who arranged this webinar, got in touch with Professor Sunstein. So Fahad, will you please introduce Professor Sunstein very briefly, then we can go on to uh, the lecture. Thank you so much, sir. Again, a very warm welcome to all. Uh, Cass Sunstein is a professor at the University of Harvard. Professor Sunstein is the founder and director of the program on behavioral economics and public policy at Harvard Law School. In 2018, the Professor Sunstein reviewed the Holberg, received the Holberg Prize from the government of Norway, which is often described as equivalent of the Nobel Prize for law and the humanities. In 2020, the WHO appointed him as chair of his technological advisory committee on behavioral insights and sciences for health. His areas of academic interest are administrative law, constitutional law, environmental law and policy, employment law, labor law, and law of economics grounded in behavioral law and economics. He's author of hundreds of articles and over 40 books, including Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, Simpler, The Future of Government, The Ethics of Influence, Hashtag Republic, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, The Cost-Benefit Revolution, On Freedom, Conformity, How Change Happens, and Too Much Information. Professor Sunstein's new book titled, This Is Not Normal, The Politics of Everyday Expectations, will be out very soon. We are very grateful and very honored to have Professor Sunstein as our first speaker in the Distinguished Pied Guest Lecture Series. We couldn't have asked for a better uh, start. So we are truly, truly honored to have an academic of Professor Sunstein's caliber and excellence. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, thank you so much. It's really a great honor for me to be able to speak to you. I haven't visited Pakistan. I hope to uh, as soon as we're able and to be able to speak about these issues in this time is an, an inspiration as well as an honor. Um, I'm going to talk about three ideas, one of which I think is familiar and two of which are, are newer. Uh, the familiar idea is nudge and we're around the 10 year anniversary. So I thought I'd say something about both the origins of the idea and the current status of the idea. 
Then I'm going to develop the FEAST framework, uh, which is in some form in use in many nations all over the world right now. And it's a way of organizing ideas about behavior change, whether we're speaking about the pandemic or about highway safety or about smoking or about any number of challenges with respect to health or safety or the environment or about economic growth. I'm also going to speak, and this is the third and final idea, about sludge, which is a new concept being used uh, at the World Health Organization and the United Nations, uh, being used in many nations as a uh, way of explaining a problem which citizens all over the world face. And to give the surprise away, Sludge consists of frictions or paperwork burdens or administrative obstacles, which often separate people from things that can change their lives. Uh, so those are the three ideas, nudge, an old idea, feast, a new framework, and sludge, uh, a new concepts. Uh, the idea of nudge, as I'm sure you're aware, goes, grows out of findings about uh, humanity and our species. For all our diversity, our minds tend to work uh, extraordinarily well, but we are imperfect choosers. We aren't irrational, but we are imperfect. Uh, this isn't because people are confused, it's because the world can be very difficult. Uh, we know that the ways in which people are imperfect choosers can be described as behavioral biases, and for purposes of public policy and what people all over the world are struggling to help with, there are five ideas that are of particular importance. The and some of them are amusing, I think. The first is present bias, meaning that we focus on today and tomorrow and next year and next decade are foreign countries and we're not sure we're ever going to visit. So human beings tend to be very good at solving today's problem, but for next week's problem, they're a little less good. And for next decade, they are less good still. This helps explain smoking, which is a reflection of the short-term benefit to many of smoking uh, and neglect of the long-term harm of smoking. It helps account for the problem of unhealthy eating it helps account for a number of safety or health problems. We know second that human beings suffer from inertia and they often procrastinate. Inertia and procrastination are related to present bias, but they refer to something a little more specific, which is that to change from the existing practice, the existing habit, is often very challenging for people. And even when people are convinced that they should, they often delay and say, think I will change my habit tomorrow. The third challenge for purposes of policy and practice is unrealistic optimism. We know that about 90% of people tend to think that they are better than the average driver and less likely to be involved in a serious accident. I know that in Pakistan, as well as in the United States, there's a serious problem of road safety. And this is first and foremost, a behavioral problem. Unrealistic optimism helps account for the road safety challenge because many drivers think 
the other person is an unsafe driver. I am a good driver. I will not get in a serious accident. With respect to the pandemic, unrealistic optimism is a constant um, difficulty to encourage people to do things that could reduce their risks. We know fourth, that people tend not to be very good at assessing risks. Um, human beings know if something is about to fall on them or if an animal is chasing them or if they are in immediate danger. But in assessing risks that we're going to face over the next decade, we often use shortcuts, thinking, for example, did this happen to my neighbor? Did this happen to my friend? Did this happen to someone in my family? And if the answer to that is no, we tend to think we don't have to worry very much. If the answer is yes, we may worry too much. This is called the availability heuristic. And the idea is whether we think a risk is serious depends on whether an incident is available to our mind. The last bias is called loss aversion. And it means that human beings hate losses. And while they like gains, they tend to hate losses about twice as much as they like gains. A loss from the status quo is very painful, certainly in anticipation and people will re try really hard to avoid it. That can be used, for example, there's recent data suggesting if the people are asked to pay a very small fee to use a plastic bag, they'll bring their own bag or they'll car carry the items home. By contrast, if people are told you'll get a small payment if you don't use a bag, if you bring your own, their behavior doesn't change. Loss aversion motivates humanity. So we know now from decades of work that people are present biased. The future often doesn't matter very much. That inertia and procrastination are very powerful forces. That people tend to be unrealistically optimistic. That's one reason why they often are smiling even when things are very difficult. That their perception of risk is often biased depending on what they see and learn about, and that people are loss averse. Okay, that's our species, and these findings are growing, but these are findings that are um, uh, very robust. They, cu they cut across uh, many uh, people. Nudges are understood as interventions that are designed to counteract or help people who suffer from or pervasively face these challenges. And one way to understand the impetus for nudges is to go back to the 1930s and just to notice that a German psychologist named Carl Lewin said, often when people aren't engaging in certain behavior, we think, how do we push them or force them? And what Lewin said is, instead of doing that, ask one question ask why aren't they doing it anyway and remove the obstacle. So Lewin's brilliant insight, which I confess I learned about after we did our book, is take away the obstacle rather than focusing on some external intervention. You can think of a GPS device as a perfect nudge. It recognizes that the reason people often get lost 
is they don't know how to get to their preferred destination. A GPS device takes away the obstacle. Nudges typically maintain freedom of choice, but they help steer people in a direction that will make their lives go better. And typically the direction it steers people in are directions that people want to go in. They want to arrive at a particular destination and a GPS helps them. Information, for example, about the side effects of medicines or about uh, the safety problems associated with some product, that is a nudge. A warning is definitely a nudge and it can help counteract unrealistic optimism and present bias. A reminder is often a very powerful nudge. If people are reminded, for example, that they have a doctor's appointment or that they ought to be wearing a mask or that it's a very good idea for them to pay their bill now because they may get in trouble if they don't, that can overcome various behavioral biases, including inertia and procrastination in particular. Often if people are told what the social norm is, that most people are doing a certain thing, then they're more likely to do it. And that can be a good um, uh, protection against the problem of unrealistic optimism. I have a friend who's written a book about behavioral finance and he writes on Twitter periodically, my book is doing very well and much better than expectations. Thank you for the support. I've studied his sales figures and the book isn't doing extremely well, but I'm sure he's truthful that it's doing better than expectations. And his saying that is a good nudge. If people are informed that most people are engaging in certain behavior, say if doctors are told most doctors aren't prescribing as many antibiotics as they are, they are likely to reduce their prescriptions of antibiotics. If students are told that most people aren't smoking very much, and it's true, then the incidence of smoking goes down. If drivers are told something about behavior that's likely to reduce road accidents and that most people are doing that, they're less likely to drive dangerously. We know that default rules determining what is automatically going to happen are an extremely powerful nudge. They automatically overcome inertia and procrastination. So if people are automatically enrolled in, let's say, a savings plan or a healthcare plan or in green energy, as is being done in some countries where solar and wind are available, that can be extremely powerful as a choice-preserving intervention. We've seen all over the world success stories that go far beyond anything that Professor Thaler and I could have imagined over the last years. In Sweden, there's a program called Vision Zero, which is designed to drive road deaths down to zero. It hasn't gotten there yet, but it's been spectacularly successful and it's used nudges. In multiple nations, efforts to protect the environment, to make air a little cleaner, to make greenhouse gases reduced, to make water cleaner, these have been promoted by nudges of multiple kinds, whether it's information to consumers, whether it's disclosure to the public, 
or whether it's automatic enrollment in cleaner energy sources. With respect to savings, many countries have promoted a situation in which people are automatically enrolled in savings plans. And those automatic enrollment initiatives have proved very effective. Here's a really small example of a nudge. In um, several countries, experiments have con been conducted in which printers settings have been automatically double-sided. And it turns out that setting the, the printing default as double-sided is much more effective in saving paper than using moral appeals or education or trying to convince people to use more double-sided printing. Just making it automatic saves paper and therefore saves money. Okay, now we're going to talk about the FEAST framework. And if you remember anything from these remarks, I hope it's the FEAST framework. The FEAST framework stands for five things, fun, easy, attractive, social, and timely. And while it's very simple and in some ways cute, it captures decades of research on behavior change. I'm going to end with the F in the FEAST framework and start with EAST, which comes from behavioral scientists largely in Europe. And I'm going to say something about what's most important in the EAST framework, and then we'll end in FEAST. The E in the framework stands for easy. And here the basic idea is if you want behavior change, make it very easy for people to engage in the desired behavior. I worked in the United States government, and I think what I learned there is the most important part of the FEAST framework is the E. For many of our most important programs, whether the issue involves poverty or food or health, the take-up rate is between 40% and 60%. That's a tragedy. That means that many people who could get help that could change their lives just don't. And the reason is it's not easy. They have to fill out forms. They have to figure out something. They have to learn something that it's just not easy to learn. For example, about the economic situation precisely of their parents and they don't know, so they give up. The E says, make it automatic if you can, then it's completely easy and make it simple if you can't make it automatic, change the burden by cutting it, let's say by 50%. There's one program we have in the United States that I almost cry when I describe, and I'm gonna to try to get through it without crying right now. It's a program I was involved in. And it's, in, it's designed to help poor children get free school lunches and breakfasts. It's a very important program. For a long time, the program was not working in the sense that many of the children who were eligible were not benefiting because their parents hadn't enrolled them. Now, some of these children are homeless. Some of them are desperately poor. Some of them are immigrants. Some of them undoubtedly come by heritage from Pakistan 
maybe their parents came from Pakistan, but they're not in the United States and they're not getting food to which they are entitled. What should we do to improve it? What we did was to say, if the school knows you're poor, if it has sufficient information to know you're poor, you are entitled to that food. And that program now using the E in the FEAST framework is feeding approximately 15 million children every year, 15 million children. And that's a statistic. If we could put on the screen, let's say the faces of three of those children, I think a large percentage of us right now would have a tear or two on our faces. The A in the FEAST framework refers to attractive. And here the idea is if you want behavior change to make the relevant action seem pleasing and interesting and not ugly or disturbing is a very good idea. New Zealand has had significant success in combating the pandemic. And one reason is that the routes toward healthier behavior have been attractive. They've, they've been, the masks have been colorful. There's been a sense that the signs that indicate what you're supposed to do, they're attractive. They don't make people feel scared or sad. They make them feel, oh, it's a little bit beautiful. If the E in the face framework wins the Olympic gold medal, the S in the face framework wins the Olympic silver medal, and the S refers to social. And here the idea is to indicate the existing social norm is to engage in the relevant behavior, whether it is stopping smoking or driving safely or acting in a certain way towards your children or your spouse. There is new research on the S in the FEAST framework, which suggests often the best approach toward producing social change is to indicate not necessarily that the majority are engaging in certain behavior, but to indicate that people are increasingly engaging in certain behavior. So to indicate that the emerging or new social norm is of a certain kind, that part of the S, the emerging or new social norm seems to work because people want to be on the side of history. So if people are increasingly doing something that's safer and healthier or more respectful, let's say, then people say, I wanna do that too. The T in the feast framework refers to timely. And here the idea is if you're giving people information or if you're trying to help people to engage in certain behavior, if you do it the night before or the week before, it's often much less effective than if you're doing it at exactly the time when you want them to engage in the relevant behavior. Many of the nations that have made progress in combating the pandemic have used the T in the FEAST framework. They've given people just-in-time information, and that can make all the difference. If you tell people before they're going to choose something that this is what they might want to consider, that can be extremely helpful. I promised I'd end with the F in the FEAST framework, and I'm going to uh, act consistently with my promise. 
The new research, which is continuing to be compiled, suggests that a neglected tool for behavior change all over the world is to make the change a little bit fun. And I'm gonna tell some stories and then give some data supportive of this. In New Zealand, when the prime minister indicated they were gonna have a very serious lockdown, she said the tooth fairy, in some countries there's said to be a tooth fairy who comes and gives a little money to a child who's lost a tooth. The tooth fairy is going to be exempted from the lockdown. The tooth fairy is going to be able to come. And that's fun. It makes people smile. They think children are going to get the kind of reward which they typically do. In some countries, Amazon, the large company is operating. And when it sells certain products, it says this will have frustration-free packaging. Frustration-free packaging is fun. I, I can tell you that from personal experience, if you buy a razor where it comes out of the package, just it's a razor rather than there's plastic and wire and you need knives and you might need uh, very serious equipment to take the razor out of the package. Frustration-free packaging is fun and I use it. Because I've been interested in behavior change, I've studied what is this all about? It's actually about the environment. It, no plastic, no solid waste, much more sustainable. But Amazon markets it as frustration-free packaging not as green packaging. And the reason it does that is to make it fun. The company Pepsi, the soft drink company, in some countries markets diet Pepsi and in other countries markets Pepsi Max, it's called. And there's reason to think that Pepsi Max has been very successful, diet Pepsi less so. And the reason is not that Pepsi Max tastes much better than Diet Pepsi. It's that Diet Pepsi seems helpful, you lose weight, but it's a little earnest and slightly depressing, Diet Pepsi. Pepsi Max, by contrast, is fun, Max. You might think with respect to Pepsi Max, it has the maximum taste, that's great. And you might think, and also it's healthier. With diet Pepsi, you might think it's a little punitive, but I should probably do it. The basic idea is many behavior change efforts speak of something analogous to diet Pepsi. We might be to do better to make people smile and think Pepsi Max. There's data supportive of this. For healthy eating, if you indicate to people that the food you're, you're encouraging people to buy is healthier for them, you get an increase in, let's say, vegetable consumption. But if you indicate instead that the vegetables taste really good, they're fun and delicious, the increase in consumption is much larger. A basic suggestion is that in many nations, to use the fun aspect is smart because behavior change is often slightly uh, challenging and scary. 
And if you give people a sense that there's enjoyment associated with it, it's a very effective idea. There's one country which has responded to the COVID problem and the problem of misinformation by saying humor, not rumor. That's its policy, humor, not rumor. And that's part of the feast framework. Okay, let me now concretize a little bit the feast framework by speaking of vaccine hesitancy. I, I studied a little bit uh, in preparation for this, some of the issues in Pakistan right now, and I know there's some concern with vaccine hesitancy. And with the World Health Organization and our advisory group, we've recently uh, published a short report on vaccine acceptance and uptake. And it's closely associated with the feast framework. It has some different features. And let me use it as an example that will um, maybe specify how to use uh, some of the behavioral findings. There are three reasons why we find vaccine hesitancy. One is inconvenience. Often people are not vaccinating because it takes time, because it takes money, and because it's confusing to figure out how to do it. Some vaccine acceptance specialists think that this is the most important feature of getting people vaccinated and that the attention given to people who are skeptical about whether the vaccine will work and who are suspicious and mistrustful is important, but it often underestimates the immense importance of increasing convenience. And the basic idea here, which we're working on in many nations, if you can make it easy and simple for people to get vaccinated, you will have more progress than you think. And this is not about communication, it's about social architecture. It's about the creation of an, an enabling environment. And the notion of an enabling environment, which the World Health Organization has just introduced, is a very helpful way of specifying the E in the EAST framework. It includes not only fast and easy, but also respectful and kind, so that people have an experience of getting vaccinated where they can report to others that was not exactly fun, but it was not awful. The second problem for vaccine take up, and again, this is generalizable, is complacency. Where many people think all over the world, it's the flu, I can handle the flu. It's not that terrible. Uh, I'm young, and even if I'm not young, I'm healthy, it's not gonna be so bad. Why should I bother? The best way of addressing complacency is to signal to people that people like them understand that their own vulnerability is real. And even if it isn't, the vulnerability that they have of getting the disease at all can transfer to vulnerability for their mother, their friend's aunt, or other people in their community. And the idea here, which I hope will connect with some, what some of you are thinking, is that a lot of our cognition, and this is a, a new idea still being developed, is based on our sense of our identity, whether our identity is national or religious or ethnic or demographic. 
if we think I'm a young person, we don't get vaccinated. Or if someone thinks in the United States, I'm a person of color and we don't get vaccinated, that can be a real problem. To address it directly by having people who are credible say, you know what? We do. People who are young, we get vaccinated to protect ourselves and to protect those we love. First problem, inconvenience. Second problem, complacency. The third problem is distrust. And here the idea is that many people think, okay, COVID is real and it's serious, but I don't trust the people who made the vaccine. I think they're interested in money. I think they're large corporations. I think there will be side effects that will be dangerous. The best way to address that is to find credible validators, either healthcare professionals or people who share certain identity characteristics with those who are mistrustful and to uh, make them publicly visible as, um, as spokespeople for vaccination. Showing is more important than telling. And if they can say, I was vaccinated and I'm sure glad I was, then that can help to overcome the problem of distrust. So the basic idea here is we can address through an enabling environment, the problem of inconvenience. We can address through clear communication of risks, the problem of complacency, and we can address through trusted validators, credible people, the problem of, um, of uh, distrust. And the good news is there's evidence from uh, uh, decades of research that these strategies actually work. Though COVID-19 of course prov provides unique obstacles. Okay, I'm going to turn now having discussed nudging and feast to a sludge, the third and final idea. And the basic notion is that all over the world, there are administrative burdens, paperwork requirements, waiting time that are like walls between human beings and something that can make their lives better. I'm keenly aware of how little I know about this particular problem in Pakistan. So I'm going to speak about my country and uh, several others I know more, but I'm hoping that this will connect to experience. So in the United States, I was in charge for four years of information requirements imposed on the American people. That means anytime people have to fill out a form to get a visa, to enter the United States, to get healthcare, to get a loan, to start a business. Anytime there was an information collection request as it's called, I had to approve it. When I left the United States government, there were approximately 9 billion annual hours of paperwork requirements imposed on the American people, 9 billion. I'm not proud of that. That's a very large number. Right now, the number is over 11 billion hours, 11 billion hours. Now, if you think about that number, 
that can be imposed on nurses or doctors or patients. They can be imposed on farmers. They can be imposed on students and teachers. They can be imposed on people who work for government itself. If you become an employee of the government, you have to fill out a lot of forms. I'm confident that you all are thinking of examples in your country where there are paperwork requirements or waiting time or administrative burdens, and they might be lower. Now, it's a nice question why these hours matter. That's a good question. One reason is that even if people are perfectly rational, this is the opposite of the E in the FEAST framework, and it's also the opposite of the F. It's not fun and it's not easy. So there are many people who have economic opportunities available or food available or development prospects that are not taken advantage of just because the burden is there. Now, if you think about real human beings rather than perfectly rational human beings, some of the most exciting work in behavioral science points to a form of scarcity to which I think we've given too little attention. We give attention to scarcity of money, scarcity of food, but we don't give attention to scarcity of cognitive bandwidth. So human beings have less bandwidth than a computer does, and that means that our capacity to attend to the number of things to which we ought to attend just isn't there because we don't have the bandwidth. Now, if you are busy or hungry or lonely or poor, the bandwidth problem will be especially challenging. And here's some data supporting that speculation. If you ask poor people and wealthy people to take an intelligence test, they basically do about the same. So that's good news. If you ask them to solve a math problem before they take the, an intelligence test, they basically do about the same. If you ask rich people and poor people to figure out how they would come up with a certain amount of money if their car breaks down, and then ask them to take an intelligence test, poor people do a lot worse. In fact, they do, they suffer as much a reduction in their intelligence as they would suffer if they had no sleep the night before. They are much less intelligent after they're asked to figure out a question, how would they come up with money if their car breaks down? And the reason is their bandwidth has been depleted. If you are wealthy and asked, how do you come up with a certain amount of money if your car breaks down, you can figure that out. If you're poor, that's a very challenging question, which means that you don't have the bandwidth to do well on an intelligence test. There's data from other countries suggesting before uh, a harvest, farmers 
show much less intelligence than after the harvest. And the reason is before the harvest, they're worried, they're preoccupied. The basic idea here is that sludge is an act of cruelty for people who are struggling. The reason is they don't have the bandwidth. In one study of administrative burdens, uh, the focus was on elderly people who have to fill out certain forms in order to get benefits that could improve their lives greatly. And there was an older man in his 80s. He was a little funny. He was amusing. He said, if you asked me to do this 20 years ago, I could do it. Now you're asking me to fill out those forms? I'm 85 years old. Now? Okay, the, the basic idea is if you're elderly, if you're sick, if you are depressed, if you are anxious, sludge is a very serious problem. One thing we've seen in many nations, and I hope this has been true in Pakistan, is there's been a small set of wars on sludge where certain government officials have been removing burdens on people, enabling them to get things to which they're entitled without filling out long forms, without going in for an interview, without doing things to which they had formerly uh, been forced to attend. I was on the telephone yesterday with an official at our Department of Health and Human Services, and he reported that over the last nine months, they've carefully scrutinized various requirements, and they found that a number of them make no sense. Not necessarily only because there's a pandemic, but even if there hadn't been a pandemic, they made no sense. What he conducted was a sludge audit, a sludge audit, asking whether requirements are justified in the current environment. A suggestion is that we need sludge audits all over the world. They can be formal and involve numbers. They can be informal. I love my university, Harvard. It's a wonderful place to work. I'm lucky to work there. But I can tell you that we have too much sludge. And sludge audits would be a very good thing for students, for administrators, and for faculty. I asked some law students um, about a year ago about the healthcare services that Harvard makes available. I said, are there any problems? And one of them said, yes, for mental health. If you are suffering from anxiety or depression, the number of things you have to do to get help is too large. And the student reported, I suffer, the student said from depression, I couldn't get help because the sludge was too overwhelming. My basic suggestion is that sludge audits should be conducted in many private and public institutions and behavioral science helps explain why they are essential. They can tear down a wall that often separates people from things that could improve their lives. I promised you I'd talk about three things, nudging, feast, and sludge. I have one little footnote and it involves cost-benefit analysis. 
The basic idea is that it's essential in thinking about requirements, including nudges, to conduct some sort of analysis of the costs and benefits. If we are doing something to make road safety better, how much better? Is it going to save one life or 10,000? How much will it cost? Will it be a modest cost or will it severely affect people in terms of economic growth? If you are doing something to make the air cleaner, how much cleaner and with what effect? Is it going to hurt consumers? Is it going to increase the price of electricity? A lot or a little. When I worked in the government, we asked that question basically every day. And in many nations, that question needs to be asked much more, including in the decision whether to reduce sludge. Often sludge is imposed without asking how much benefit does it create? How much cost does it have? And the effect of asking the cost benefit question is often to reduce and sometimes to eliminate sludge. I'm just about finished. Uh, I thank you for your patience and indulgence. This is uh, a highlight of 2021 for me to get to talk to you. I want to end by asking a single question which maybe has particular uh, poignancy or meaning in the year of the pandemic. And that is the, uh, this question, what is the one thing that human beings are most blessed to have? If there's one thing that we have, what ought we to be most grateful for? There's more than one good answers to that question and philosophers could debate it for a long time. I suggest that one answer to that question in 2021 is a four letter word. And the answer is time. Let's find, shall we, ways to give other members of the human species, our brothers and sisters, more of it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Sansun. That is a very amazing way you summed up your work. It's wonderful, great. I've been a great fan of your work and I admire it a lot. A couple of things that I'd say, I mean, if you could just tell us a little bit about this because I think our audience would love this. You talked about a sludge audit, you talked about sludge and you talked about 11 billion hours that it cost the American population. In Pakistan, I think we need to do this, and, uh, but I, think I would hazard a guess. We would probably be three or four times the sludge that you have, even though we are a poorer country. We have to fill up paperwork in triplicate, in sextuplicate, and we have to get so many attestations, which you probably never even heard of. We have to get so many stamp papers. So there's a lot of sludge in Pakistan, huge amount of sludge. Secondly, the thing that you mentioned about cost-benefit analysis. Um, I would not be remiss if I said cost-benefit analysis was virtually invented for Pakistan a long time ago because we were the first developing country 
and uh, Merleys and uh, a few people came here to develop cost-benefit analysis to help us figure out um, our infrastructure needs, et cetera. And we were supposed to do cost-benefit analysis, but we've given it up altogether. But this I'd like to relate to another question, um, uh, President Sain. You are talking about a country where the institutions are strong. And yes, you can get, New Zealand can get to, and the, the prime minister can listen to you. The, um, the British prime minister can understand you. The bureaucracy can understand you. And the thing that I'm amazed at, which I think you might like to explain to people a little bit, is the office that you were in charge of. You were in Obama's cabinet. The office you were in charge of was OIRA, which I've always amazes me when the name amazes me, Office of Information and Regulation. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite amazing. And then you were under an act which is called the Paper Reduction Act, which is also amazing. I mean, I, we, we can't even think of these things. The question is, in our country where our leaders and our institutions are so weak, they can't even appreciate this. They have no, as you said, no bandwidth to listen to this. At the same time, they're so preoccupied with foreign borrowing and so preoccupied with foreign uh, things that they don't pay attention. This is what Dambisi Meyer wrote about a long time ago. I don't know whether you read that book or not about day date, that they are so preoccupied internationally, they don't have the time to worry about these things. And they're so preoccupied with this crisis of getting development going. How do we gain their bandwidth? How do we make institutions in a country like this? So I'd like you to Think about it and give us your best answer. Thank you so much for that. I learned a lot from what you just said. I'll tell you, I'm thinking the sport I love most and that I play most is squash. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, the greatest players, the leaders of the world were all from Pakistan. And these were people, these were my heroes. So I'm thinking that the brilliance and agility that they had has been a model to me, not only in squash, but also in work. And so this is something that all over the world we can see progress on. So in terms of uh, institutions, the, the office for which I led uh, has two main roles. This may be of interest. Uh, and these were created basically under President Reagan. Num number which shows that it's not political, that President Reagan and President Obama, different political parties, but they basically agree on this. Uh, first, if there's a paperwork requirement imposed on people, someone should approve it with some scrutiny. And that hasn't worked well enough. So it's far from perfect, but it's better that it exists. So there have been efforts to reduce sludge periodically. And there have been uh, times when I said, and my predecessors and successors said to other parts of the government, you can't do that because it's too much sludge. It's just not justified. So, so this is something, a, a paperwork reduction act is a good idea, I think for all countries, even if they don't uh, always do what the paperwork reduction act aspires to have done. On cost benefit analysis, the, uh, the idea is if you have, a, uh, and this is the office of information and regulatory affairs, this is the, we just, the information is about paperwork, regulatory affairs is about regulation. So if our environmental protection agency wants to regulate, let's say, uh, um, coal plants, mm -hmm. or if our Department of Transportation wants to regulate automobile companies, 
or if our Department of Agriculture wants to regulate farmers, that office uh, scrutinizes the regulation to see if it makes sense. Now, a regulation is basically a mandate. So if the idea is that cars have to be more fuel efficient or energy or uh, refrigerators have to have labels on them or that farmers have to engage in certain practices to reduce risks, the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs says yes or no. Now, it can say no on the ground that the, it's going to have modest benefits and be very expensive, or it can say yes and be more aggressive because you'll have very high benefits and it won't cost very much. If the office says no, the head of, if my old office says no, the head of the ministry who wants to do it can go to one person, the president. And uh, since uh, the, the office I had it usually is in, in direct communication with the president, it would be unlikely that the president would overrule that office because they'd have talked beforehand and you'd be doing what the president basically approves of. But the cost benefit discipline, it's, it's extremely important. And for some of, you know, our country has many, many challenges right now, but some of the challenges are less serious than they would have been because of cost benefit analysis. And some of the challenges are, are worse than they would have been because we didn't do good cost benefit analysis. Um, in order to get the institutions working, um, there, there are two ways. One is just to have a convincing argument. So I was a young lawyer in our Department of Justice when the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs was set up and President Reagan and his people were convinced that cost benefit analysis was a good tool. So it was just they were convinced by people who had been making that argument, including I'm sure some of the people to whom you refer. So, so that's one way to do it. The other way is to have an authority just insist on it. So if there's someone in the government who's has some power who likes the idea, uh, that makes it work. So when I was working in our government, I had authority because President Obama gave it to me and I could say, it's, it's actually not gonna, we're not gonna do that because it's very expensive and it's not gonna help many people. Mm -hmm. And another thing, if you can briefly explain, how do we go about doing a sludge audit? What are the mechanics of a sludge audit? Okay, so this, this is a great question and it, it's a work in progress. So we're talking about really a new practice. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you um, two models. Uh, there's an international organization, I won't name it, but you would have heard of it, that's engaged in a sludge audit right now. And what they are doing is they're working with people who work for that organization to see in a month, what is the amount of time devoted to administrative work? So they're asking uh, how many times a day do you fill out forms and how long does it take? And at the end of the month, they will have a sludge audit. That's one example. Uh, another example comes from a document. It's called the Information Collection Budget of the United States Government. I think it's the, the least read document in the history of humanity. 
No one reads it. It's called the Information Collection Budget of the United States Government. But it is a sludge audit. And what it means is all parts of our government have to specify the number of hours and paperwork requirements that they imposed in the last year. You can find it online. When I say no one reads it, that's an exaggeration. Probably 200 people read it. And it, the fact that it's required by law means that uh, the parts of the government, it might be the Department of Transportation, it might be the Department of Education, which is imposing requirements on students. I'm very conscious that student visas, it's so important to many countries that students come in and after COVID is under control, you know, the extraordinary relationship the United States has with Pakistan is partly because we know each other. So many people who've studied here and have, you know, been the best students we've had. And then they either go back to Pakistan or they go somewhere and they are uh, you know, almost family members. And the sludge imposed by the student visa program right now, it's too much. And what exactly it should be is a fair question. But there's a sludge audit that's occurred that gives people a tool to see how much exactly is required. And we need much more of that. It, it could be done in an informal way, meaning just ask people in the course of the next month to catalog how much time. Or it could be very quantitative and kind of academic. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Sunsin. I know you have to go, but if you have five minutes, we'll take two quick questions from the audience. Fahad, do you have any questions for Professor Sunsin? We ask people to send in their questions, so Fahad can uh, tell you. Yes, Please go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, so there are a number of questions, mostly related to <clears throat> COVID-19 and uh, the, the governance issues um, across uh, developing countries. So the first question, which is, uh, which is for representative of the many questions asked, is that how flexible an indigenous uh, peace framework is to fit into a local context of Pakistan, which has a specific economic, political, and social cultural landscape? And this question has been asked in relation to the COVID-19 SOPs compliance. So one question is um, that. Another question is about... Um, answer that first. Yeah. Sure, sure. If I understood it correctly, it's about uh, a distinctive culture and institutions and infrastructure and how to adapt the vaccine. Okay, here's, uh, that's very important. And, and here's a little phrase that we've used at the World Health Organization, which is uh, meet people where they are. And uh, I've learned that that phrase has real depth in it, despite its simplicity. So that in, in some international organizations have a kind of top-down approach where they aren't meeting people where they are. They're using some uh, framework or some verbal formula that people find confusing or alienating. So adaptation to a local context is essential and, and listening to people is essential. So if people are concerned about uh, the risks of a vaccine, say, or they have a particular set of judgments about COVID-19, to, to adapt that to the local context is very important. And like the United States, Pakistan is a very large country. So what works in one part of the country might not work in another. 
Yes, and to listen very carefully to uh, what people are frightened of, what people are enthusiastic about, and, and what works with them to, to help them reduce risks. That, that's essential. And I think in the next generation of work on the international side, we're going to see much more meeting people where they are. Good for the second question. Um, so the second question is related to uh, the nudge about the book nudge. In nudge, you have talked about optimism and overconfidence heuristic. Is this the same as planning fallacy? If not, then can you please explain the difference between the two? The question has been asked by Mr. Shahid Mahmood, the senior research fellow at Find. Okay, thank you for that. It's, it's a great question. So the planning fallacy is one example of uh, unrealistic optimism and overconfidence. So you can think of uh, overconfidence and unrealistic optimism as large concepts like an umbrella of which one example would be the planning fallacy. So for those for whom the planning fallacy isn't familiar, if you ask people how long a project will take, they will typically say much less time than it actually takes, which is an example of unrealistic overconfidence. But unrealistic overconfidence is a much broader concept. If you ask people uh, what's the likelihood that they will um, you know, get a disease, they typically give a much lower percentage and, and that isn't the planning fallacy. I can tell you that I'm right now finishing a book with Daniel Kahneman, who was the originator of the planning fallacy. And we're finishing the book, I hope this week, we expected we would finish 18 months ago. So not only did he invent the planning fallacy, we are experiencing the planning fallacy. <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor Sunstein. Thank you very much. It's been most kind of you. We promised you we'd let you go out in an hour, and we certainly will. Uh, we are, I'm patiently waiting for your book, Noise. Uh, it's a much-awaited book, much-talked-about book, and we keep following your procrastination, so to speak. <laughs> so, anyways, we look forward to it, and we look forward to seeing you in Pakistan sometimes, hopefully. But we are extremely grateful. There are tons of questions out there, but we can't go on, otherwise we'll keep you here the whole day and i know you've got a lot to do so thank you very much i with that i will just simply say goodbye to all i don't need to say anything more than appreciate what professor sunstein has done given us a lovely overview of behavioral science i must say this is a whole course in itself thank you professor sunstein all the best to you thank, thank you and all the best to everyone thanks for having me